we apologise to the listener for a very bad patch of interference. This interference only lasts at the early part of this recording. We do apologise. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, caused Israel to sin. Nadat, Baasha, Elah, Zimri, and Omri are passed over almost in virtual silence. Omri was the greatest of all the kings of Israel. Um, archaeologically, we know that he was a tremendous king and quite a big political influence in the Middle East at the time. Yet, he is given but a few verses in Scripture. Ahab, his son, is given more chapters than any other king in the book. But because the reign of Ahab is And that is why it was just at that point that God raised up his name. But Elijah is always looked upon next to Moses and Samuel as the greatest figure in the old prophecy. Uh, now why? Because Elijah is brought at the greatest point of trust in uh, Israel's history. Ahab was an evil man. He was a weak man. He was married to a woman that we have now come have come to know as one of the greatest influences in Israel's history. She is, we know, exceedingly clever, strong, and highly intelligent woman. It is quite obvious that Ahab was but a figurehead as far as Jezebel was concerned. Jezebel was the real power behind the throne. And Elijah knew that. Elijah was not afraid of Ahab. He could withstand Ahab. He could speak to Ahab, to his face. He could intercept Ahab. But as soon as Jezebel threatened to do something about Elijah, you know what happened. He collapsed. Fled for his life into the dead. He knew that Jezebel was the real power behind the throne. We also know that Elijah's great mission was to re-establish the god Jehovah. 
His name means simply, Elijah means simply, the God Jehovah. That is the key to his mission and ministry. That is why Elijah's, Elijah's ministry is full of thunder and fire. His ministry is one of sudden, dramatic, We don't see really outstanding so any meekness or gentleness about the character or the temperament of a liar. man. He was a stern, strong, rough kind of country man who lived in the rocks and in the desert and who was You remember how we found that God instructed Elijah. He brought him to Horeb, and there he showed that tremendous scene on Mount Carmel. When God vindicated his honor, vindicated his honor, whilst it was part of the sovereign purpose and plan of God, was not the way God permanently moved. It was we called it Elijah and the school of God. You remember the Lord taught him that it was by the still small voice, not by the earthquake, not by the wind, not by the fire, but by that voice of a gentle whisper that God permanently And we have the key to that in the last part of chapter 19, where he tells him to take Elisha as his successor. Elisha is an altogether different man to Elijah. Elisha is a softer man, he is a gentle man, he is a man that is used to living in courts of the king, later on we find that he has much to do with the royal house. He's not at all like Elijah, he doesn't live in caves and amongst the rocks. He's a man who is an altogether different type of man in every way to Elijah. Now in those last chapters of the first book of Kings, we find one or two rather interesting things that we ought to look at. The first is this, and it might um, uh, surprise some of us, but therein lies a very real principle. In spite of the fact that Ahab is the most evil king that Israel has yet produced, and in spite of the fact that his heart is set upon really perverting the people in every way possible, just literally obeying every woman's wish of Jezebel. Yet we are told expressly here that the Lord comes in on the side of Ahab against Syria in the north. And he tells Ahab that he will deliver him out of the hands of the Syrians, and indeed more than that, he will actually destroy the Syrians. That is exactly what happens if you look at chapter 20. The Lord says, because of his name, because of his name, and because Israel is his people, he will deliver them. I think sometimes we tend to think that the Lord, whenever the Lord moves amongst his people, it's because they're all right, and because they deserve it. This is not so at all. The Lord's people can be on the wrong ground, they can be under quite false leadership, and yet, in a very real way, the Lord will not forsake his namesake amongst, in, in his people. That's the thing that we have to learn. The Lord will deliver his people as he did Esther and the people in Persia, just because they are his people, and just because his name is at stake. You see, the Syrians have said very simply that if we can only get Ahab to come out against us, uh, on the plain, we'll destroy them. But uh, that was a challenge which uh, the Lord himself was going to take on. And in a very wonderful way, he delivers Syria into Ahab's hands. That story is followed by one of the most intensely evil stories in the Bible. It is the, the vineyard of Naboth. 
Ahab wants that yard, that vineyard, to make into a herb garden. It was on the edge of his palace. And he thought it would be rather nice if he annexed it and made it into a very nice herb garden, herbal type of garden. Um, he sends along to Nabal, and Nabal says, no, my father had this, my father's father had it. Uh, right down, right through, my ancestors have farmed this plot of land. I don't want to let it go. And it says, Ahab went into a sulk. He went up onto his bed, he turned his face to the wall, <coughs> to the wall, and he refused to eat. So Jezebel laughed at him, and she said, just you leave that to me. She sent a letter down to the chief men of the city, and she said, the sacrilege in the town, proclaim a fast according to the law. And she said, when you proclaim the fast, make Naboth chairman of the tribunal investigating the sacrilege. Then she said, get two wicked men, we'll pay them, and they will falsely accuse Naboth of blasphemy. Because the law says, in the mouth of two witnesses, it shall be established. Then she said, when it's established, take him out and stone him and all his children. That's exactly what happened. Fast was proclaimed. People were gathered together. Naboth was chairman, tribunal. Two men witnessed against him, and he was stoned, and all his children were stoned with him. So that in one moment, the whole of Naboth's household were murdered. Then Jezebel just went to Ahab and said, Naboth's dead, and he has no heir, the vineyard's yours. But the Lord saw what had happened, and he told Elijah to go straight down to Ahab and to tell Ahab that because he had sold himself to do evil on that very plot of ground he would lose his life and Jezebel would never be buried because there wouldn't be anything of her to bury and Elijah if you read the story went down to Ahab and uh, delivered his message from the Lord which was literally fulfilled a little later but now we find another interesting principle Ahab puts on sackcloth and ashes he weeps, he cries, he repents and the Lord says to Elijah do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? And the Lord says, because Ahab has humbled himself before me, I will put off the day of his judgment. You know, some children of God do think the Lord is far, far more severe and harsh than he is. The Lord can spare Ahab because he asked forgiveness and repented after such a vile and filthy murder. He certainly will uh, be merciful long-suffering towards his own who really want him. The most remarkable thing that a man who sold for evil, absolutely out to pervert the people of God, is given chance after chance and opportunity after opportunity by the Lord. But of course you know how the story ends. Jehoshaphat and Ahab join forces and they go out to war. Jehoshaphat was a good king and uh, Ahab said, let the prophets come in and tell us, as was the custom, uh, what way the battle was going. And all the prophets prophesied in the name of Jehovah, and they said, uh, the Lord's with you. And one of them, uh, Zedekiah, took hold of a, a, an iron horn, and he said, this is what you will be like, Ahab. You will be like this iron horn with the Syrians. You will destroy them. But Jehoshaphat, who was a godly man, said, I'm not satisfied. Isn't there another prophet? And then we get another little insight into the nature of Ahab. He says, uh, yes, there is, but I don't like him. He has never said a good thing about me. I don't want that type of man. I hate him, he says. He's never prophesied a good thing. Jehoshaphat says, can we hear him? And Micaiah is brought into the presence of the two kings. And Micaiah, very wisely, says, it will be well with you. 
And Ahab says, how many times have I told you, Micaiah, to speak the truth before the Lord? So Micaiah says, very well, I'll tell you the truth. I saw a vision, and I saw the whole of Israel scattered with no shepherd. That was obvious what he meant. Ahab was going to be killed. And he said, the second vision I saw, I saw the throne of God, and I saw the heavenly host. And then I saw the Lord saying, Who will entice Ahab for me? And an evil spirit came out and said, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And I will cause them to prophesy good things. And as you read the story, Ahab lost his temper. He turned around to Jehoshaphat and said, Isn't that exactly what I told you about this man? He never said a good thing about me. He, gave, he wrote out an order straight away and Micaiah was put into the, into the dungeon of that particular city and given what is called the bread of affliction to eat. That was the end of uh, Ahab. But the, uh, the story proceeds to tell us that in the battle, Ahab was so afraid that he disguised himself. And uh, Ben-Hadad of Syria had his 32 uh, crack chariot captains. And he said, Mark only the king of Israel. Forget all the other men. Just you battle your way right through the ranks for the king of Israel. And then destroy him. And they made for Jehoshaphat. But if you read Chronicles, you find Jehoshaphat prayed to the Lord in the battle. And the Lord delivered him. They turned back. But suddenly some archer shot, I don't know whether it was deliberate or whether it was just in the battle, shot an arrow which pierced the heart of Ahab. And it says that Ahab died and was, he died on the very field of Naboth whom he had murdered. That anyway is the end of the most evil king of Israel. And then, as we move on, you'll find <clears throat> that the next thing after Ahab's death, that you find the very last part of, what, of the first book of Kings, chapter 22, we find the story of Jehoshaphat of Judah's reign. Jehoshaphat of Judah was a good king. He was a godly king. We are told that he walked in the Lord's way. We're told that he carried on the reformation of his father Asa. You remember after these two evil kings of Judah, Asa um, uh, carried through a very real reformation. Jehoshaphat, his son, carried on the work of that reformation. But we find one or two very real weaknesses about Jehoshaphat. The first is that although he destroyed many of the high places, he also left quite a number which were to grow in number once he had died. We're told in Kings that he did left them. In Chronicles we're told he destroyed quite a number of them. He destroyed the religious prostitutes. He closed down the groves that the people worshipped in. He carried through all kinds of reformation to try and clean up the land and somehow or other, bring the people right back into alignment with the Lord. But isn't it amazing that when you get a man who loves the Lord, who is really used of God, and who means business with God, so much so that he carries through a, a very, real, very real measures to his own cost. Yet we find he does one of the most foolish things for whichever after he's remembered. He had a son, Jehoram, who was the crown prince. And he thought it would be an awfully good thing if they could only make peace with their brothers, Israel. And he thought the way that they could make peace was by marrying his son to Ahab's daughter. So Jehoram marries Athaliah the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. 
And in so doing, he introduces into, into Judah the woman who was nearly used of Satan to destroy God's purpose completely. It just shows you how we can be one with God, one with God's purpose, walking in God's ways, going an awful long way in real measures of holiness and righteousness, and yet, just out of compromise on some small point, do something to us quite right for what is better than unity. What is better than trying to somehow bring opposing parties together? But just take the one step without honouring it, which after our death is going to open the floodgates to every kind of evil. Though Jehoshaphat is remembered for that, he was weak on one or two things. He continually went out to war with the kings of Israel, and he nearly always lost. Indeed, he nearly lost his life once. Then he combined his navy with the navy of Israel. And he nearly lost the lot because a tremendous squall hit them in the Red Sea and the whole of Judah's navy sank. He learned his lesson and the one thing recorded here in this, these few verses that when again King uh, Ahab asked if they could join forces, naval forces, he had a few. So you see, we learn from that, that you can have the people of God on the right ground and you can have the people of God on the wrong ground. We must always maintain the unity of all the people of God, but we must never become, never become involved with the people of God organizationally or institutionally who are living on the wrong ground. The children of Israel, the house of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, were as much the children of God as the kingdom of Judah. But every time in the history of Judah and Israel that the two joined forces, there was tragedy. You couldn't have thought of anything better to end the very real antagonism than by Jehoram marrying Ahab's daughter. What better thing? What more diplomatic thing? What more political uh, thing could be done. Nothing. It's got everything about it which is right and good. But Athaliah was like Jezebel, her mother. She was the ruling force behind Jehoram of Judah, not Jehoram. And we shall find that out when we come to them. Then, if we turn to the last part from verse 51 and turn over to the second book of Kings, we find the story of Ahaziah of Israel. We're back now here, Ahab's son, Ahaziah. Elijah's still ministering. Ahaziah is engaged in a battle with, with um, I think it's the Edomite. And he, it says we're not told exactly how it happened, he fell out of an upper window and was very, very badly hurt. And he was very afraid, and he asked his servants to go down to Baal-zebub and asked Baal-zebub the god whether he would die or whether he would live. And Elijah, uh, who was nearby, heard the voice of God. The Lord said, you go down and intercept those messengers and say, are you going down to Baal-zebub to inquire because there is no god in Israel? Go back and tell Ahaziah that he shall surely die. And the messengers go back to tell Ahaziah, his wife, you come back. Prophet met us on the way. He told us, didn't we know there was a God in Israel? Why are we inquiring of Baal's about? You shall surely die, he said. So he said, and what was he like? They said he was a hairy man. He said it was Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> So he said, well, you send out a captain with 50 soldiers and have him executed. And the 50 soldiers came up. His eye calls fire down and they're all consumed. Another band of 50 go out. And again it happens. It seems terrible for us. The third time a band go out and the captain's so afraid he falls on his knees and says, oh, please let my life be precious in your sight. And the Lord said to Elijah, it's all right, you can trust this man. Go down there. Those men, you can't judge the Lord and things like that. Those men were evil men. The moment Elijah gave himself into their hands, they would have murdered him. That would have been the end of Elijah. 
God stepped in before anything could be done. But that last one was a different kind of man. And the Lord said, you can go down with that man. He won't harm you. He comes down, he delivers the message himself to Ahaziah, and it says, just cryptically, so Ahaziah died. That was the end of Ahaziah. Then we are introduced almost immediately to Jehoram of Israel, the son of Ahaziah. And immediately, Jehoram is left. And we are immediately introduced to Elisha. Elijah leaves this world in the way he came into it. He goes in a whirlwind. There is something about Elijah that is a whirlwind. His whole life, his whole ministry has been a whirlwind. He's come crashing onto the scene. Everything's been devastated by his presence. Wherever he's gone, it's just been the same. He's been just a whirlwind. One lesson he learned was in the midst of it all, he could hear the voice of God. He goes over, and it's very instructive, that when Elisha goes with Elijah, everyone tries to stop Elijah. Elijah turns around and says, look, will you stop following me? And Elijah says, I will not stop. So he says, all right, on they go. Then Elijah says, will you go back from following me? Don't follow me. Elisha says, I'm going to go the whole way with you. Then the sons of the prophets come out and they say, don't you know that your master's going to be taken from you? Leave him. And many of the Lord's people will try to stop us from really going right on uh, in the purpose of God. But Elisha goes on and goes on and goes on till in the end there are only the two of them and they go over to Jordan together. And then the two of them left. Elijah says to Elisha, what would you like? The one doing what is the one thing you want? He said, I want the firstborn son's inheritance, a double portion. Elijah says, if you see me when I go, that will be the one thing you will have. And then it says, suddenly, he saw the chariots of God, the chariots of fire. And Elijah went up in the whirlwind. It is very interesting, it does not say that he went up in the chariots. Elisha saw the chariots of fire, but Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. And it is also very interesting that when the mantle fell back off Elijah and fell onto Elisha, the sons of the prophets said, we're quite sure his dead body must be somewhere. Would you mind if we go and send out a search party to find it? Elisha says, certainly not. But they worried him so much, it says, that Elisha became ashamed. I suppose they made him feel that he couldn't care less about his master. So he said, all right, send out your search party. For three days they scoured the hills and the desert for where the body they thought had been dropped by the world, but they couldn't find anybody. And when they came back, Elisha said, I told you, you shouldn't have gone. I know he's got every glory. Elisha's life and ministry so different to Elijah's? It's entirely different. Everything about him is different. He doesn't wear that um, leather, hairy leather kind of rough country garment. He wears clothes. He is continually found in the court of the king. He is soft-spoken. Everything about Elisha is different. It is very interesting that the first two miracles he performed give the key to his ministry. His name, by the way, Elisha, means God for salvation. In the same way that Elijah, the God Jehovah, is the key to his ministry, Elisha's name is the key to his, God for salvation. His ministry was the building up of a remnant, which he did. The sons of the prophets, or the schools of the prophets, sorting out the few faithful that remained in the land, 7,000 who hadn't bowed their knee to Baal, and comforting them, edifying them, strengthening them. That is why the very first thing that Elisha does when he comes to the city, they say, there's something wrong with the water. He says, bring me a little cruise of salt. He puts the salt into the water and he says, the water is healed. Now, this is the key to Elisha's ministry. Nearly everything that Elisha does is constructive. Much 
much of Elijah's ministry in many ways has been negative. Although it's been a great declaration of who God is and who the Lord is, it's been very, very in some ways destructive. It's been the tearing up and the pulling down, the rooting out. Elisha's, on the other hand, is a very real ministry uh, of the positive, all the way through. Of course, we have the story of the, of the as the authorised version puts, the little children that ran out after Elisha, calling him Baldhead. Uh, but um, it, we might as well point out that the word there doesn't mean little children, it means young fellows. And also, they weren't being rude about his polished uh, uh, head, because he had something on his head. It was much more than uh, just that. It was a deliberate insult of young fellows of anything between 10 and 12, who went out after him from a city which, in which we, believe, we know that there was a shrine to Baal, the deliberate insult. And uh, Elisha's cursing of them in the name of the Lord was a very strong, stern measure which must have left its mark upon the people at the beginning of his public ministry. Nevertheless, let's not think that Elisha's ministry was like that all the way through. For if you look through, you'll find some wonderful things about Elisha's ministry. See the things that are uh, noted about him. Generally speaking, we'll have to leave some, but just take up these. The first thing we find, and they're not in chronological sequence, by the way. That's why you don't get the kings mentioned by name. You just get called the kings of it, the king of Israel. The first thing is a woman in oil. This woman's in debt. By the law, that means that that woman is going to be taken into slavery by the one that her husband is in debt to. Evidently, her husband was in debt. He died. And it meant that she and her sons were now going to go over as payment to whoever her husband was in debt to. She came to Elisha in a terrible state. She was on the verge of slavery. What should she do? She had only one thing, a little pot of oil. Elijah said, take that pot of oil and pour it out. Take every vessel you can in the house and pour it out and pour it out and pour it out until you haven't got another thing you can pour into. And that's what she does. And then when she comes back, everything's overflowing with oil. He says, now don't sell the lot and live on it. Pay the debt and live on the rest. What does that teach us? The key to Elisha's ministry of life is resurrection. In these days of death and uh, decline and disintegration, the resurrection, the God of resurrection, is the answer. But where is the God of resurrection? He is found in the Holy Spirit. You may have only one little tiny oil, pot of oil. That may be all you have, but it's the Holy Spirit. May you say it reverently. Whilst you leave that one pot of oil corked up and left in your house, you will live in poverty. But Elisha says, uncork it. Pour out the little you've got. Go on pouring it out. Go on pouring it out. And you'll pay all your debts. And you'll have a lot to live on. It's a lesson we're all very slow to learn. Elisha's ministry began a little later with the woman and the oil. Then he finds the woman who is barren. And he tells her that she's going to bear a son. She cannot believe it. But when the time comes round, she bears a son. He's born. And as so, so often the case, when God gives us something we desperately want, then he tests us out. God gives the son, God takes away the son. The little lad runs out after his father when they're weeping and gets sunstroke. He comes back and dies on his mother's lap. And in the afternoon, he dies. She lays him out in the prophet's chamber that she had specially built on the roof. For Elisha, whenever he went by that way, she was a wealthy woman. She laid him out. Isn't it strange? He had everything else the world could give her. But the one thing she wanted about everything else was her son. She hadn't got. Now her, the son the Lord promised her had died. She laid him out. She sat on the mass. Her husband said, what are you doing? She said, it, sh it will be well. When he asked her, she wouldn't, she wouldn't tell him. She just said, it will be well, that's safe. Then she went out on the journey and Gehazi met her on the way. And uh, Elisha said, you run down there and ask her, is it well with your husband? Is it well uh, with you? 
Is it well with your son? Gehazi comes down and says, Is it well with you? Is it well with your uh, husband? Is it well with the boy? She says, It is well. Now that was faith. <coughs> Some people, of course, say that she was just uh, um, refusing to share burdens with people that didn't really matter. But uh, I don't think that is so. We can't, we can't read into it anything like that. That woman was a living symbol of faith. When she got to Elisha, it was a different story. All she could do was clutch his feet and her grief poured out of her. She said, didn't you tell me that the Lord was going to give me a son? And Elisha said to Gehazi, you run down very quickly with my staff to the uh, her house, find where the son is, put it, find out whether he's dead. He was dead. Elisha followed on quickly. And then it says he shut them all out, he went into the room, and he, it says expressly, laid himself out upon the sun. He prayed. Then he put his mouth to his mouth, his eyes to his eyes, his hands to his hands, his feet to his feet. And after he'd done this a number of times, three times, it says the little lad sneezed seven times. And he went down to the woman and said, what does this teach us? It teaches us again the key of Elisha's ministry is resurrection. It's all resurrection, isn't it? First of all, this woman was given a son. Then when the Lord's great test came to away, her son was given back in a new way. This is what God does with us again and again if we're going to belong to such a remnant in days of decline. We have a great desire to the Lord. We desire, we desire, we desire let's long beyond possibility and if everything dies within us and then the Lord gives it to us and then all unwittingly our hands get onto it again and it has to die once again and how is it given back to us in an increased way a new way it is given back by resurrection again so you go on to the next story and you find the next story is the famine in the land by the way all these stories have trouble at the background they've all got need at the background the next one's a famine. And uh, they're having to scrape together the food. And someone very foolishly cuts some wild gourds which are poisonous, puts them into the, into the a big pot, a stew. And uh, when they're eating it, some of the prophet cries out, there's death in the pot. Poison it. Uh, Elisha, he takes meal, puts it in, and uh, there's no death in the pot they can all eat. Uh, the picture there of something very, very wonderful. It's resurrection again. When something poisonous has crept in, what is the answer? Meal. What is meal? Meal is grave. It's been ground. It's a picture of resurrection. Once more, giving itself. Life. Life being given. The only counteraction to poison in Israel in that day there was poison in the pot, nationally. The only answer was a little handful of meal. That's what Elisha, that Shunammite woman, those others, faithful few in the land, they were just like the meal. They, in the day of crisis, were keeping the whole country going. They were the salt that was preserving it all. And then Naaman, or you get the, you can go all through these stores, you get the 20 loaves that fed the 100 men. You get Naaman, here's a man that comes from a foreign country, he's got leprosy, the white kind, he's malignant, he's going to die. But Elisha's got an answer. He says, if you dip seven times in the Jordan, you'll be all right. Although Naaman's very angry at the beginning, when he dips seven times in the Jordan, he's all right. This little remnant have got the answer to foreigners. They've got the answer to the unsaved. If the unsaved come to them, well, let the name of the Lord be in disrepute. Let the name of the Lord be in dishonor. But Elisha is in the land. And there are others like Elisha in the land. There are the faithful few. They've got the answer. And the God of Israel is found in the land with Elisha. The God of Israel is found in the land with Elisha. Naaman can come from afar. And he can be cured of something which is so malignant that it's going to kill him. 
And then, you know, when the king of Syria gets really angry and sends his army because he finds <coughs> out that every time he sends a marauding band down, <laughs> somehow or other, the king of Israel knows. So he says, we've got a spy in the court. Who is it? But someone very wisely said, you've got no spy. Elisha tells uh, the king of Israel all that you say in your bedchamber. So he said, well then we'll finish Elisha. And he sends not a few, not a band, but quite a number of divisions of his army to encircle the whole town of Dothan where Elisha was. Elisha knew. He woke up in the morning quite calmly. If we follow one reading, he walked out to meet them. I'm not quite sure just what it means, but he certainly got up, he knew. His servant was terrified. He said, do you see what's round the city? He didn't have to be asked what they were there for. The servant knew only too well uh, what that army was doing round the city. But Elisha wasn't prepared. He said, oh Lord, open his eyes. And when the servant's eyes were opened, he saw that there was another kind of division stationed all around Elisha. Then it says, according to the word of Elisha, the Lord smote them with blindness. And Elisha leads the divisions of the army of the king of Syria right into the capital of Samaria. He says, I'll take you. You've come to the wrong place. I'll take you to the right place. You just follow me. And it says here in the word that he led them blinded, quite docilely, lamb-like. They followed Elisha into the capital. And then it says they suddenly got their sight back, only to find that they were enclosed in the capital of the king of Israel. But of course the king of Israel, Jehoram, wants to slay them. But Elisha, oh, just two of his whole ministry, says, you don't slay them. No, you don't slay them. You give them a good meal. And so it says, King Jehoram gave them a banquet. And the little word at the end was, they came no more into <laughs> That was a way to deal with enemies. The next story is a very different one. That is because it would almost seem to be a contradiction, but it's not in chronological sequence. The next story tells again of the Syrians coming into battle. And this time they lay siege to Samaria, and people are eating their own children. The siege is so terrible. And uh, the story goes that a woman calls out from the walls to King Jehoram. She says, could you do something about this? I and my neighbor made a pact that today we'd eat my son and tomorrow we'd eat hers. Well, today we've boiled my son and eaten him and she's hidden hers. <laughs> could you do something about that? And it said the king was so shocked that he rent his robe. And then the people saw for the first time that underneath his king, his royal regalia, he had sackcloth. But his faith wasn't very strong in the Lord, and he said that he would execute Elisha. He felt that Elisha had failed him. But Elisha said, by this time tomorrow, there will be such abundance that there will be no famine and no trouble. That's exactly what happened if you read the story. You find that suddenly in the night the Syrians fled because they heard the sound of an army moving. Who it was, what it was, we don't know except that the Lord did it. And they fled and they left all their grain, their horses, their, their uh, treasures, their everything. And so for one moment, from terrible famine, within a matter of hours, the city was sharing out the spoil. That's the key to Elisha's ministry. All the way through its building up, all the way through its constructive, all the way through its resurrection, everywhere. Why, it's even recorded that when Elisha died and they laid him to rest in the sepulchre, it says a Moabite band raiding the country came in and they killed a man and they were burying him. And suddenly they saw uh, the Israelites. And so they very, very hastily flung the man's dead body into the tomb of Elisha. And it says when the dead man's body touched the bones of Elisha, he stood up on his feet. So there you are. Elisha is so full of the life of God that even when he's dead, the, the ministry goes on. 
it is interesting to note that it has been said about the kings of Israel and Judah that it's better to have a, a dead righteous man than a live unrighteous one. When Elisha was already gone, <coughs> he was still the symbol of resurrection. He was still the symbol that God was able to do something amongst his people. So we learn from that ministry of Elisha some very real lessons. Now all that takes us right through to the ninth chapter of Two, two Kings. When we come to Jehoram and Ahaziah, Jehoram of Israel, and by the way, you notice that here you've got two men of the same name, Jehoram and Jehoram. They don't, they're nothing to do with each other. They just happen to have the same name, which is rather confusing for us. But Jehoram of Israel is an evil man. He was assassinated by Jehu, who was, or Jehu, who was an army man. Jehu was the... Uh, commander of the army council as far as we can make out and he slew um, Jehoram and he also slew Ahaziah <coughs> um, you can read the story of that exactly how it happened when we come to Jehoram to Ahaziah of Judah we find both of them are evil Jehoshaphat married Jehoram to Athaliah her influence was evil. He introduced Baal worship into Judah. Uh, he died. Ahaziah's son took over. Ahaziah was killed by Jehu. And Athaliah came to the throne. The first thing that Athaliah did when she came to the throne was to murder every single person of the royal house. She did not leave a single one alive. No one quite, quite knows why she did it, but she did it. It was a bloodbath, and the whole of Jerusalem ran with blood. But there was one child nine months of age who was saved by his aunt, who happened to be the wife of the high priest, and she stole him away with his nerve and hid him in the temple. And that child was kept alive, nurtured and brought up, in the temple without anyone knowing about it except the temple priests for six years. On that one little baby, the whole purpose of God depended. If that child had died, the messianic line died with him. But that little child, kept alive by the Levites and the priests in the temple, brought up secretly, was the hope of God and the hope of the people of God. That is a wonderful story, how in the end uh, they guarded, in those days, they guarded Joash, until at last they came to the coronation, and they very secretly laid preparations for a coronation. And then at last, when the coronation day came, Athaliah heard all the trumpets and the shouting and the cheering, you know the story, how she walked to the house of God and saw the king crowned there, he was only seven years of age, but she saw him there on the platform crowned. Before she could say anything, she was hustled out and executed. So the one great attempt of Satan to destroy the royal house and the line by which the Messiah should come was wonderfully, wonderfully thwarted by the Spirit of God through that little tiny group, just a little remnant of people who remained faithful. When you come to these others, for instance, Jehu, you find that this man, and here's the big lesson in Jehu, he was a man who was intensely evil, but he believed in doing the Lord's uh, work. Um, zeal without the life and character is no good to God. Jehu did the Lord's work. He he carried out the Lord's word to a, to a letter. Indeed, he exceeded it far. But his was not backed up by a character. Jehu's reign was a terrible bloodbath. You've only got to, to read it. First of all, as you know, he murdered Ahab. 
Then he murdered the king of Judah, who was visiting Jehoram. He murdered both of them one day. Then he murdered Jezebel. You probably you don't want to hear the story of how he murdered Jezebel. It's too terrible for words. Then he murdered the 70 sons of Ahab, 70 royal princes. He had their heads all cut off at once and put into a mound outside the city gate. Then he proclaimed, uh, he met 42 of the princes of Judah and slew them. You know, when they came to visit royal supporters. And the worst thing of all with Jehu was when, some people, by the way, believe this is right, I don't. He proclaimed a fast and a great festal day for Baal. And he said, if uh, Ahab was a Baal worshipper, I am much more so. And he said, let all the Baal worshippers in the land gather together, all the leaders, the Baal worshippers. And we will have a great festal day in the house of Baal and Smith. So they all came. The place was packed to capacity. He said to everyone that to be given garments so they could be easily distinguished from everyone else in the town, all dressed beautifully. He offered a burnt offering in the name of Baal, but he'd already put the guards right the way round the whole the house of Baal. And at the given signal, when he offered up the burnt offering, a massacre began. And every one of the Baal, Baal worshippers, leaders, leaders of the Baal worship in Israel, was murdered. Now even the prophet spoke against that. It was doing the Lord's work in a wrong way. He was remembered long after for what he did in Jerusalem. He not only wiped out the royal house of Ahab, but he wiped out every single man known to have any sympathy whatsoever or any distant connection or relationship to Ahab or to Jehoram. Each assassination and each change of dynasty here had been worse than the one preceding. So I think we'll leave it there tonight. A sign with Jehu that he certainly wiped out Baal worship. But what did he introduce? He introduced what he called the worship of Jehovah. But his worship of Jehovah was nothing more than a, a terrible caricature of the real thing. And it was the curse of the kingdom of Israel till the day that it was carried away captive. Joash, on the other hand, that young king, carried out very real reformation. He rebuilt part of the house of God. He cleaned out much of the rubbish, tried to do as much as he could. All the days that the man who brought him up, Jehoiada the high priest, lived. But when <coughs> Jehoiada died, Joash turned back, and his last days were not. We learn some lessons then. I know it's rather a lot, trying to cover a lot of ground. Maybe not a lot of lessons we can draw out until we come right to the end of it all and we look back and we can draw out some big lessons that underlie it all. But I do trust that that at least gives some kind of background to your understanding of those books.